Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Looking forward to our overtime we have scheduled this morning. Yeah, so uh, yeah, like, like Adam said, appreciate you hanging out with us. You're still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio program. We're now in overtime and we've got a good show for you. We've got some we've got Dave Jamison from the Huffington Post talking about this Littler Mendelssohn report. Um, We've got Mel Bure talking about the Case New Holland strike in Iowa. So going to be some good stuff. Um, so yeah, our first first segment for overtime is uh, we're gonna bring Dave Jamison on. Dave Jamison is a labor reporter for the Huffington Post, and he read he subjected himself to uh, union avoidance law firm Littler Mendelssohn's annual Labor Day report, and so he's gonna come on and he's gonna tell us all about it. Dave, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Taking the time from a from a family camping trip. Is that right? Yeah, taking the boys camping later today, but we're not we're not pushing off for another hour, so I'm good to go. Glad, uh appreciate the invite. Glad to be here and you know, I read the Littler stuff so you don't have to. <laughs> there you go. And and uh I assure you I did not. So I'm going to be totally relying on <laughs> on your take for it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so they do this annual Labor Day uh, report and uh, you got to keep in mind it's 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 partly a marketing document. Right. I mean, they're um, they're they're one of the big union avoidance law firms and like 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 the others are always trying to drum up customers. And so uh, you got to take that with a grain of salt. But uh, overall, I, honestly, it's a pretty helpful report. It, it, it kind of runs through the state of, of the economy for workers right now. And, um, and it goes through, you know, the changes we're seeing legally and politically right now when, when it comes to, to labor law. So, um, you know, uh, this is coming from Littler, not from me. They, they say that, we, you know, we could be on the cusp of what they say has the potential to be one of the most pro-union eras in, in modern history. And uh, of course, if you're a union avoidance law firm, that, that has the potential to bring a lot of business. You know, um, that, that, that phrase could, could spook, certainly spook a lot of uh, in-house counsel and a lot of companies that are facing union drives. But I, also, I think it's accurate too, uh, right. when you look at sort of the way the winds have shifted and 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 the ways that that things are favorable right now to organizing you know one is is economic we got this tight labor market some some bargaining power shifting back to workers but also um you know politically legally we got a, a democrat in the white house who's made important changes 
is at the labor board. Uh, they're 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 making uh, changes that that are are more favorable to organizing, uh, and so I think it's it's. This is a moment for for unions right now, and they really we, we don't know how long this window will be open, and so so they got to make make the most of it. And I think uh, I, I think that's partly what Littler was saying. Yeah, well, so you know, you mentioned that this is almost kind of a marketing report. Um, is uh, who who is the you know presumably labor reporters for the Huffington Post, union activists? We're not like. We're not the target audience, right? Who is the target audience? Who gets this in their email or in their mailbox? Who who are the people that this is made for? This is for employers, right? And and probably in particular uh, the lawyers uh, inside employers, uh, who you know, Littler is a company that you go to when you are facing an organizing campaign or you're going to have to to bargain a contract. Most companies. Uh, if they have in-house labor counsel, they really, most of them are probably not really well equipped to kind of handle an organizing campaign or if they want to beat it back, of course. Uh, of course, anyone can just remain neutral and bargain with workers. Of course, that's not how it goes with most employers. Uh, a lot of them are going to reach for a law firm like Littler. So uh, a document like this is to give employers the rundown and, and to say, hey, you know, Littler knows what's going on. We got to read on things. Uh, if you if you got workers who are if you catch something as a drift among your workers, you you call us because uh, we're the kind of law firm that's going to help you uh, beat this stuff. What are the um, so do they in this report? Do they also advertise the type of services that they would offer uh, to employers who are wanting to you know beat down uh, um, uppity workers? Sure. So, so what they do in in the parts that and granted, this is a big management side law firm that deals with all factors of labor law, whether it's you know minimum wage and overtime or discrimination, EEOC. So they kind of they address all of that stuff. But as it relates to unions, what they do is they run through um, the different cases that we might see shifting. You know, the NLRB has a very aggressive general counsel right now, Jennifer Abruzzo. She's pushing through a lot of pro-union changes right now. And what firms like Littler do, and they do this in this document, they also do it on their websites. Morgan Lewis, all these uh, uh, anti-union firms do this. They sort of, um, you know, break down changes or possible changes to the law and, you know, there's kind of an, ins an insinuation there like, hey, employer, you know, you should be a little concerned about this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you're going to want, um, you know, one of our partners to, uh, to talk to about, about these concerning changes. So, of course, they, they get into the legal landscape and how it's shifting and sort of uh, cast that as a reason for concern for, for employers. Um, again, this is, you know, partly a marketing document and, 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 uh, the, the law firms, they do this with their own blogs too, all the time. You know, when you, when you're searching, uh, things about organizing, uh, you often just kind of land on these obscure blogs run by, by union avoidance law firms. And one of the things that they mention, in addition to the shifting legal uh, you know, legal landscape, they said that uh, 
and and this is from your tweet, Littler says the top-down approach to union organizing has, quote, flipped entirely, moving in a less predictable grassroots direction. And and I can't tell if, uh, and, and I can't remember the picture that, that you screen-capped, but you said this new paradigm may be confusing for new employers, so you may want to consider seeking the advice of outside counsel. <laughs> I thought yeah, that was... That that was me talking, not Littler, but I, 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 I was sort of characterizing what I, what I think they were trying to get at. Um, and and uh, uh, this is, I, I think, that what you described there from the report, this, this shift from top down to grassroots, I think that's something that both uh, Littler and union activists would, would agree on, you know, that we're seeing right now. We see it in kind of these independent uh, efforts that are popping up, you know, just the one this past week was was at Home Depot in Philadelphia, you know, a guy there submitted over 100 cards, um, not affiliated with a union. I, I talked to them yesterday. He's hasn't really been in talks about affiliating. And of course, they haven't won an election yet. But um, this is the kind of thing that Littler's talking about and that we're that we're really seeing a lot, you know, um, and so that that's one reason uh, you know, the Starbucks campaign has been so successful. Of course, that's a part of Workers United, which is part of SEIU. So it's not like this totally independent thing, but that's been a very grassroots campaign. I mean, just basically run by the mm -hmm. baristas. And I think that's one reason it's been so successful. And so, you know, that's what Littler is, is saying here. Like, like you, you know, Joe Blow, whether you're you're at a Fortune 500 that's non-union for now, or whether you run a small company out there or you franchise a few places, you should be worried because workers are agitating right now and they're and they're doing it on their own. You know what Littler said, and I think this is you know correct in in, in part. They're saying that, that traditionally, um, you know, the unions go and do the knocking and try to to you know get workers to start an organizing campaign. They're saying it's kind of the opposite right now. Workers are either doing it on their own or they're actively seeking out unions. And of course, it, it's always been a mix of both, right? But I think kind of the latter category is really, really popping right now where we have somebody submit, you know, uh, a viable petition for a Home Depot store and basically, you know, no established unions even know about it. Uh, so that's kind of the terrain we're in right now. And it's, I think, partly why people find it like a really interesting and exciting time. And so what do you think the do, do you think that that this will be effective for Littler in drumming up, you know, because 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 you said this is kind of primarily going to be a marketing document. So is, is their goal to get employers to preemptively seek their counsel and, and do union busting meetings before a union even comes in? Yeah, I I think uh, you know Littler would would probably recommend that, and they they want to be out there as one of the the best known firms in this field, and of course they are. Um, they're they've become sort of the, the only firm that that sort of regular people might have heard of in this field, and that's because of the Starbucks campaign, right? Those of us in, uh, who track this stuff, whether journalists or or uh, union activists or, or lawyers, they sort of know who the big firms are, but Littler. Um, is a little unique in that they've got offices all over the place, right? Um, they're they're a bigger firm than like um, th than a Morgan Lewis, which is another really well-known union avoidance firm. And I think sort of the network that Littler has and their reach is a big reason that you know Starbucks maybe went with them because Starbucks is dealing with this campaign that's percolating all over the country. And so Littler, 
I haven't looked at how many lawyers from Littler have been working on the the um, the Starbucks campaign lately, but early on, I, I was going through the filings and there was, uh, you know, more than three dozen. And, and this was early this year. Wouldn't be surprised if it was over 100 at this point that have been working on filings. And it, that, I mean, that's an enormous amount of paperwork. It's an enormous amount of money for a, a firm like Littler. And it's a huge amount even for a Starbucks to be spending. Um, so, you know, this is... Uh, it's this is an exciting time for for unions. I think I think it's an exciting time for the union avoidance firms too, right? I mean, this is a moment for them. Uh, they've got employers that are scared, employers that have never had to deal with unions, employers that have never really faced a viable organizing campaign, and certainly never had to bargain a, a, a first contract. Now they're 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 spooked about that, right? I mean, Microsoft recently came out with a statement saying they were kind of like opening the door to neutrality. And what they said was, was they acknowledged like this is coming for us and basically everybody. And so that's the route we're going to go. Other companies are going to take a different tack and they're going to lean on law firms like Littler. They're going to lean on uh, union avoidance consulting firms that bring the consultants in who are not lawyers usually, but they're going to deliver the scary message. They're going to do the captive audience meetings. Um, you know, this should be a bonanza for, for that world right now as well. You mentioned that you you think it'll be a bonanza, but but I wonder about that because like you like you just said, uh, Microsoft is moving towards the direction of at least initial neutrality. Um, they are not; it's not looking like they're making plans to hire union avoidance law firms. And Starbucks Workers United quote tweeted your tweet saying um, so, something like, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, hire Littler Mendelssohn so that you you too can lose 80% of your union elections. You know, do you think that, um, do, do you think that maybe some people will see this report or, or see this report in conjunction with seeing everything else that we're seeing and come to the come to the conclusion that it might be better for them just to accept defeat as far as there's going to be a union here. I'm going to just try to get the best deal that I can with a unionized workforce. What do you think the balance is going to be there? I think there's going to be some of those, but they will certainly be outliers. That That's not how most employers respond. And uh, employers just go to incredible lengths to, to try to keep a, a union out. I mean, uh, even after years of covering this, I'm, I'm continually surprised of, of, you know, how far they're willing to go. And, I, you know, I, I in talking with a, a management side uh, lawyer who was really in the trenches on this stuff, um, you know, he once told me, like, basically, no matter what you think of a company, their morals go out the window when when a union comes knocking. Uh, so I, I don't expect that to change. Um, and I don't, you, you know, this is a... a I think a real moment of opportunity for unions, but keep in mind, I mean, the, the union density is, is so low still, we're talking still 6% in the private sector, you know, even making headway on that, um, you know, union firms are still going to be really probably in a small minority. So, um, so I don't see that changing. I don't see, I don't see companies calculations changing and, and, you know, Littler, uh, they lost, uh, you know, this, I, I think they've, they've really, the, the union campaign has really beaten them up at Starbucks. I mean, uh, obviously, if your, effort, your your whole strategy was to contain this thing, it's, it's been a failure. But, um, you know, this is a long road here. Uh, they've got around 
not yet 300 stores out of 9,000 unionized. And, and it's going to be a, a brutal contract fight. It already is. You know, Starbucks, I'm sure, is willing to, to, to starve them out. They're going to take this as far as they can in, in holding back on a decent contract. And so, you know, even where workers are winning, there's there's like a really, really long fight ahead of them. And and the, the union avoidance industry, this, this part of the legal world and the consulting world, it's a big piece of that. Dave, I appreciate you reading Union Busting Attorney's report so that we don't have to <laughs> and for coming and telling us about it. Um, where can folks find your work? I uh, just go to go to HuffPost or check me out on Twitter. Handles Jameson, J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N. And uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for the work that you do and hope you have fun camping this weekend. Uh, all right. Thanks, guys. All right. You definitely recommend checking out Dave Jamison's work. Really good. One of the good ones. Oh, uh, yeah. Definitely one of the most important labor reporters right now that you need to be following if you want to know what's happening. Yeah. Uh, so, Adam, you've got uh, some labor history, uh, some September labor history for us. So what happened in labor history in September? Oh, yeah. September 2022. Let's do a little bit of labor history some important anniversaries in labor history. Um, as you can see, I'm rocking my United Farm Workers shirt today, which will come up here in a sec. Um, I do want to give a shout out again to uh, Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators, the 2022-23 edition. Uh, that gave me some inspiration and a lot of the material for this segment. And it's something uh, we're going to incorporate moving forward, I believe. Make sure we did this last month. want to make sure we're incorporating some labor history into our program. Uh, so shout out to Planning to Change the World. That's from Education for Liberation Network. And um, Labor Notes and Zen Education Project were also very helpful sources as I compiled this. So let's get started with September 1st. That was the 100th anniversary of the Daltrey in Injunction. Rail railroad workers revolted against a 12% wage cut. Nearly 400,000 workers walked off the job in July 1922. Pennsylvania Railroad President Samuel Ray hired more than 16,000 armed men to break the strike of nearly 20,000 employees at the employees, I mean, at the company's shops in Altoona, Pennsylvania. On September 1st, Attorney General Harry Daughtry got a federal judge to issue a sweeping injunction forbidding all activities encouraging the strike, violating the f workers' First Amendment right to free speech. This was not the first, nor would it be the last time striking workers would see their First Amendment rights under attack. And uh, so that one seems, that's interesting. We start off with the railroad story, since we have been discussing the railroads the last couple of weeks, and of course we've covered uh, the ways in which lawyer Matt Cole has so sought support from the courts to try to uh, limit the pickets and protests down in Brookwood, Alabama. And moving on, September 5th was Labor Day. While listeners to this show probably know the real Labor Day is actually May 1st, International Workers' Day, uh, I reckon we'll take the day. Labor Day honors the social and economic achievements of American workers and pays tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of the country. And according to Newsmax, if you took off Labor Day, uh, you are a communist sympathizer. So, just make that little note. 
September 8th was International Literacy Day, which is meant to give children and communities a chance to rediscover the joys of reading while raising awareness about those without access to formal education. This being a labor radio program, I think we can all agree on the critical need for literacy among our fellow workers. September 10th was the 125th anniversary of the Latimer Massacre. A strike began weeks prior as miners from eastern Pennsylvania protested extremely dangerous working conditions, unpaid overtime, and the company's store. About 400 miners, mostly immigrants, began an unarmed, peaceful march to Latimer to support the newly formed United Mine Workers there. When they arrived, Luzerne County Sheriff James Martin and his deputies opened fire on the men and boys. Nineteen mine workers were killed and dozens were wounded in the Latimer Massacre. I uh, recommend you check out Zen Education Project for some more details there. Uh, that was not one I had heard of previously. September 12th was the 50th anniversary of Ames' occupation of the Oklahoma Department of Education. Approximately 50 Native Americans with the American Indian Movement took over the office of State Education Director Overton James, demanding his resignation for misappropriation of federal funds intended for education programs for Native American children. The occupation continued until a settlement was reached with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which agreed to an audit of education department expenditures, as, a, as well as allowing more Native input into programs affecting their children. Another example of direct action, getting the goods. September 15th was the first official day of Hispanic Heritage Month, starting on the anniversary of independence for five Latin American countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. September 17th was the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Antietam, also called the Battle of Sharpsburg down here in the south. This battle is often referred to as the bloodiest single day in U.S. history. 23,000 men were killed or wounded in just a single day of fighting. It's also an important day to remember that the Civil War, like all wars, was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Most of those killed or wounded were of the poorer classes. While the Union did suffer greater casualties than the Confederacy, the battle was a turning point for the North, and the Union victory at Antietam led to the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And of course, many historians see the Civil War and Reconstruction as effectively a second American Revolution. September 18th was the 10th anniversary of the conclusion of the successful Chicago Teachers Union strike. Under the slogan, Fighting for the Schools Chicago Students Deserve, they rallied the public to their side and beat back the powerful mayor, Rahm Emanuel. The eight-day strike by 27,000 Chicago teachers showed the importance of educators using their collective power to demand that all children get the education they deserve. The CTU's 2012 strike didn't just put the union on the map. It gave the whole labor movement a jolt of hope. It served as a model for how future organizers might build alliances among educators, parents, and community organizations in resisting the pro-corporate, pro-privatization agenda. Just a few years earlier, this was an ordinary union with run-of-the-mill problems. Uninspiring leaders, inactive members, too few stewards, and a general sense of passivity and hopelessness. A few rank-and-file activists got together and changed all that. The strike continues to be a touchstone for educators and labor organizers today. 
and their story remains a model for anyone looking to transform a do-nothing union into a fighting force. On a personal note, the 2012 CTU strike was second place as I was getting into teaching here in North Alabama. And I remember wanting to drive up to Chicago to march with them, but being too broke at the time to make that happen. Uh, but it really inspired me to focus my energies on the intersection of public education and the labor movement and led to me getting involved in my local. And there are story after story after story of other union activists uh, who were similarly inspired by the 2012 Chicago Teachers Union strike. September, 20, September 21st excuse me, was the International Day of Peace initiated in 1981. The UN International Day of Peace is an annual commemoration aimed at encouraging all people to play a part in building a peace culture worldwide. Communities across the globe organized their own observances designed to bring people together for world peace. My own observation would be fight the boss, not their wars. September 30th was the 60th anniversary of the founding of the National Farm Workers Association. Activists led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Horta founded the National Farm Workers Association, now known as the United Farm Workers, in order to support and defend the rights of farm workers to decent working conditions and wages. NFWA largely acted for change through boycotts, marches, and fasts, and is also known for mobilizing the Chicano movement in the U.S. Uh, and I want to just mention that the United Farm Workers are fighting in California right now to get legislation signed by Governor Newsom to make it easier to have union elections uh, for, for the farm workers who, if listeners may know, are excluded from some of the normal provisions of American labor law, much like domestic workers. And that's it for September labor history. Yeah, amazingly, he has not signed that even after <clears throat> Biden wrote a letter to him urging him to sign it. Um, and he, st he still hasn't signed it. some Gavin, come yeah. on, brother. And a report recently came out saying that he's considering a run for the presidency. And I don't know how he's going to do that if Biden would be able to outflank him <laughs> from his left on labor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I understand that Big Ag is, is heavily influential in California, much as they are here in Alabama. Mm. Uh but do the right thing, Governor Newsom. Sign the bill. These workers deserve to have a fair opportunity for free and fair union elections. Uh, frankly, they deserve their union and shouldn't even have to go through uh, the ordeal. But as Mr. Jamison just you know, talked to us about with the union-busting law firms, unfortunately, most uh, capitalists do not take the approach of recognizing a union voluntarily. Even in, even in instances where it would actually save them more money and heartache and hassle to do so. Um, Speaking of situations where that would be the case, we've got a pop culture union story. And um, I mentioned going into overtime, we're going to be talking about anime union busting. And Strom McCallum, McCallum in the chat said, what in hell is anime union busting? And well, we're about it's to not a new series out on not a new series. It's not a new series, though. Um, I'm sure you could make an interesting anime series about union busting. I would watch it. I would watch it because I'm a, I'm a big I mean, I'm not a big anime fan, but I do. I don't watch TV just a whole lot. 
But when I watch TV, the majority of the time that I watch TV, I'm watching anime, unless I'm watching like Abbott Elementary with my fiance. Well, I definitely grew up watching, um, you know, Adult Swim and and Toonami. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those were some some big parts of my viewing habits growing up. Yeah, Dragon Ball Z and Cowboy Bebop and uh, some of those programs. I'm not very in tune with anime currently. So, um, you know, I'm sure if I were to go to something like Crunchyroll, I would be completely uh, out of my element. Yeah. But uh, well, I am aware of anime. Yeah. I know what it is. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, hopefully most of our listeners at least are aware of what it is, whether you watch it or not. Uh, it's not for everybody. It's kind of a unique subculture, uh, the diehard anime fans. So it, always it, interesting when uh, our union world intersects with these like fandoms other, and, and mm-hmm. s- subcultures. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, you know, anime is like that Japanese animation, uh, like Dragon Ball Z, Naruto, stuff like that. Um, and Crunchyroll is kind of the the big Netflix for anime. Right. Um, they're they're the the I think they're the biggest anime streaming service. That's like all they have. It's only anime on Crunchyroll, is my understanding. Um, and that's where most most places are gonna put. Put their anime, it's and it's a paid subscription service, right? Yes. like Netflix and who and and uh, to which I am a subscriber. Uh, potentially not for long. We'll we'll see what the we'll see what comes of this. But uh, they are apparently vehemently anti-union. Mm. They've got a new season of Mob Psycho One Hundred. I have never seen that, uh, but apparently there's a pretty big audience for it. Uh, they've got a new season of Mob Psycho 100, and the lead voice actor for the dub, which subs are when you know you see the anime and its original Japanese voice actors and you get subtitles. The dub is where they redo the audio tracks, and so they get American or, or English actors. And Kyle McCarley was the uh, voice actor for Mob. Mob is the main character in Mob Psycho 100 for season one and season two. A new season is coming out, season three, and, uh, and, and there's been some changes at Crunchyroll that I'm not entirely sure what all is going I think Sony bought them, and I'm not sure who did the dub for Mob Psycho 100, first season and second season. I'm not, I'm not entirely clear on all of that, but the, uh, the voice actor is a, a member of SAG-AFTRA, which is the, which is the actor's union. Right. And um and when they approached him about uh about doing the voice for Mob for season three, they did not want to sign a union contract. So it must have been somebody other than Crunchyroll that was doing Mob Psycho 100 for the first and second season because apparently it was union because this guy's a union member and he doesn't do non-union gigs. So so I don't so so anyway, um they have oh I just got a text from from Jared an, another anime fan listener of the show. IFPTE member at NASA. He says, um, 
He says, there's a free account level on Crunchyroll. Yeah, I knew that. In addition to the premium subscription, main difference is free accounts get the new episodes a week or two later after the premiere. I didn't know that. that I thought that it was just that you get commercials if you get the free account, but apparently you get it a week or two later than the premiere. Crunchyroll is the main U.S. anime service because they have been able to get the licenses for the major series as oh, okay. opposed to torrent sites. I don't know what torrent sites are. I'm not deep enough i guess into the anime I'm, well I'm torrents pretty... that that's like from back in my teenage years that's how we stole all that music and movies gotcha and, and yeah so yeah that's so so i appreciate that jared for that um I, i'm a pretty pop level anime consumer i think um so so i i appreciate that and so so kyle mccarley put out a youtube video it's about five minutes long um explaining the situation and um, and it, it's, it's short enough that I, um, that there really isn't a whole lot of, a whole lot of, 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 you know, chaff to cut from the wheat. Um, but it's also long enough that it, that I thought it might be weird just to play it and then react to it. So we're going to, we're going to play it and we're going to stop and pause and, and react as, as we go along this clip. Um, and, and so, so Adam, let's go ahead and, and play this clip from Kyle McCarley, the uh, English voice actor for Mob in Mob Psycho 100. Explain what's going on at Crunchyroll. Hi everybody, Kyle McCarley here. You may know me as the English voice of Shigeo Kageyama, aka Mob, in the anime series Mob Psycho 100. I'm making this video to let you know that, uh, well, first of all, in case you weren't aware, there is a third season of Mob Psycho 100 on the way very, very soon. As a fan myself, I was super excited about this. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. I love playing Mob. Uh, and I, I love you guys, the fans. You guys have been have been incredible over the years. Uh, but I'm making this video because I wanted to let you know that uh, there have been talks over the past couple of weeks between the cast of the show and Crunchyroll, who is who is producing the show, uh, about potentially producing this season of the show on a SAG-AFTRA union contract. And as a result of those conversations, I'm making this video because it's, it's looking very, very likely that I will not be reprising my role as Mob. I know for some of you, that probably sucks to hear. Uh, believe me, it sucks a lot to say. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really bummed about this. But I wanted to let you all know how we got here and, and, and where here is. As a SAG-AFTRA union member and a member of the SAG-AFTRA dubbing steering committee, it's really, really important to me personally that all the work that I do be covered by a SAG-AFTRA union contract. For those of you who don't know, SAG-AFTRA is a union that represents actors. Unions exist to protect their workers. I could get into the nitty gritty about why unions are a good thing and why SAG-AFTRA exists and what they do for performers like myself, but uh, I'm not gonna muddy up this video with all that information. If you're curious, you can just scroll through the Twitter thread that follows this post. It has been you made- you pause that for a second because we will be, um, we'll be going through his, his analysis of, uh, you know, of unions, because I think that it's a really good kind of pop level explainer about what unions are and, and we're gonna play, or we're gonna show you a tweet of the audience's reaction to this Twitter thread and to this video, um, because it's it, it's it's been really heartening seeing the audience's reaction. I think um, it, it's been really interesting, and and I, I've been happy to see you know stuff like that. So yeah, I think he is 
clearly aware that he's speaking to an audience that are not uh, labor nerds. <laughs> They're <laughs> anime nerds, right, right. right? And and I say that lovingly. I'm not trying to be disparaging in any way. Because, um, like, I know that I am a, a, a nerd when it comes to, to unions and, and mm-hmm. follow them very obsessively and, and read everything I can and, and watch everything I can. and uh, But that's a very rare uh, or small segment of the population. And certainly, uh, I think he's aware that he's speaking to people who are committed loyal fans of this anime series who may know almost nothing about unions. Yeah. Uh, so I like that he kind of gives you just enough to let you know this is a good thing. This is why. Um, but, you know, I, because I think it is easy sometimes for us uh, to all, regardless of whether we're talking union or not, uh, to get kind of stuck in our own bubbles and forget mm-hmm. that not everybody is in tune with everything we're in tune with. Uh, right. And sometimes we have to have some shared vocabulary and, and meet people where they're at on different topics. Yep. Yeah, let's go ahead and continue. Abundantly clear to me that in the case of season three of Mob Psycho 100, Crunchyroll is not going to be producing that show on a SAG after contract. And I want to put this little note in here just to be very, very clear. It's not about money. They were prepared to pay me at least what I would be getting on a union scale contract, possibly more. They just don't want to put it on a union contract. It with nine percent Because this is something that we see across industries in right. in some cases we do see occasionally now of course we understand that that on the main in the main union workers are going to be making more but we do see occasionally we see uh, we see industries we see individual bosses that are willing to pay more as long as they don't have to um, as long as they don't have to put it on a union contract. Why is that? Well, because union contracts are, you know, legally binding. You cannot unilaterally change them. If you, uh, you know, if it's not a union contract, you can, as the boss, as the employer, unilaterally change it. There's also beyond wages. There are other things that unions fight for. Safety, health, um, um, you know, quality of life, time off, things like this that go into other, uh, that go into union contracts. There's also more than one person involved in a union contract. And so maybe they're willing to pay this guy, who's the lead actor on this, they're willing to pay him a lot of money. But what happens if it's a SAG after a union contract? Well, that means other people are in there too. And they've got to pay other people more. And that's an issue as well. And so the fact that he's willing to even potentially take a pay cut to not to, to do it on a union contract so that the other people get the benefit of it and so that he gets the other ancillary benefits of it speaks to, I think, his commitment to solidarity and and his, you know, um, I think that speaks well to his character that he's willing to do that. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think you're right. This is something we see a lot uh, where ultimately bosses and industries prioritize power sometimes mm-hmm. even over profits in the short term. Right. Uh, I mean, look at Warrior Matt Cole and the amount of money that they have left A billion in the mines. dollars on uh, the table. Yeah, I, they have spent a tremendous amount of money. They've lost a lot of potential money from mines being inactive. And, you know, if you add all those costs up, hell, they could have just settled this contract 500 days ago. Right. Uh, and probably have been better off. Yes, uh, but, you know, and of course, they'll frame this as flexibility. The bosses want mm-hmm. flexibility. 
but what it's really about is is about the the relationship to power there and, and bosses don't want to share yeah not good at sharing <laughs> yeah yeah let's continue of the work that i do that would be the end of the conversation for me i would say thank you very much for the opportunity but i don't work non-union but with the help of my castmates who i've been in close contact with throughout the course of these negotiations i was able to see an opportunity here crunchyroll has historically been very very hesitant to take anything that they produce onto a sag after contract and uh just because of the role that i have in this particular show and this particular show's popularity with you guys it seemed like maybe there was an opportunity to change that so i went back to crunchyroll with the offer that i would agree to work on this season of this show non-union on the condition that they agree to sit down and meet with SAG-AFTRA representatives with the purposes of negotiating a potential contract for them to use on future productions. That's all I was asking. Not a commitment to definitely guaranteed make such an agreement happen, not a commitment to definitely guarantee using such an agreement if it came into existence, just an agreement to good faith negotiations. An agreement to now, sit I think down this is, and have a conversation. This is really, really a, a basic ask. Like, you can't... There there could be no lesser ask here. You know, there's no commitment on either side. It's just like, meet with us. Just meet with us. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's an interesting... That's an interesting ask. Um, he said, you know, he's talked about that with his castmates and... and we certainly support them in this ask and and think that it's it's the least that Crunchyroll can do getting this union actor on a non-union contract uh for a meeting. Right. There's no commitments, no strings. Um just that, sit down and talk. That is um I mean that's incredibly generous from <laughs> from from Kyle here. This is an incredibly generous offer from Kyle and from the union. Um, just a meeting and I'll give you a whole season of my labor. So let's see what, let's see how they responded. On their own terms, where SAG-AFTRA can present the needs of the performers that they represent on a contract with any given employer and a conversation where Crunchyroll can present their needs as a production company and just find out if there's any middle ground to be found between those two so that a contract could be made for future productions. As far as where things stand right now, uh, Crunchyroll's a big corporation. There's a lot of people that have to weigh in on a decision like this, most of whom I have not spoken to. But uh, all I needed them to do was agree to sit down and have a conversation, and it seems like that's not something that they want to do. So I just wanted to let you guys know that unless things change, you're probably going to be hearing at least one unfamiliar voice on Mob Psycho 100 Season 3, maybe more. I don't want to speak for anybody in particular, and I certainly don't want to to, to cast judgment or blame against any actor who, who takes whatever work opportunities they're given. Everybody's in different situations in their lives and, and in their careers, and they all have to make their own decisions and, and the decisions that are best for them. And I'm not going to, to begrudge anybody for that. Thank you guys so very much for your support. I love you all, and I hope that the next time I talk to you, I will have some happier news to share. So I think that was a that was a good video about 
you know, about the situation. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the update, it, it's it's not good news. And, and Adam, let's go to that that uh, graphic from the Kotaku article. Um, Mo- uh, and, and the title is Mob Psycho 100's English voice actor probably isn't coming back because of Crunchyroll. And, and they posted an update to that article that same day that the video came out. That same day the video came out, Crunchyroll replied... Crunchyroll's the anime production company. Kotaku is is the anime news service. Crunchyroll replied to Kotaku saying, quote, Crunchyroll is excited to bring fans worldwide the dub for the third season of Mob Psycho 100. We will need to recast some roles. We're excited for fans to enjoy the new voice talent and greatly thank any departing cast for their contributions to previous seasons. So it seems like we've got a confirmation here that they're going to repro- uh, that they're going to uh, replace Kyle on on that production. Um, at, which totally sucks. Which at- which really sucks, and. I think, like, goes to show the depravity of, of the corporate executives at Crunchyroll. Right. I mean, could you imagine giving up the lead role that clearly, from the audience reaction that we're going to show you here in a bit, clearly people have a connection to because you don't want to meet with him. You do not want to have a meeting with him and his union representatives. And so you're willing to to cut him, to cut the leading actor... From uh, from their role, that's amazing. That's appalling. Yeah, I mean, and I've witnessed that kind of stuff before, where bosses just—it's like the very act of meeting with you uh, is beneath them, right? And that's the sort of attitude they have, and that's kind of the vibe I'm getting here. Because obviously, Kyle was um, extremely uh, <laughs> nice about yeah. this, yeah. Um, extremely like you know, low level of escalation here. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, I mean, you couldn't really ask for any less, I don't think, at this point. Um, So, you know, there's nothing about what I just witnessed would make me scared to have a meeting with that guy. Seriously, seriously. Uh, You know, he's not riling... Even even after he already kind of sees the writing on the wall that he's probably going to get screwed here, Mm -hmm. he's still not riling people up. He's not uh, no. being defamatory. Uh, he's still playing it really cool, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, sometimes it's it's really hurtful when you see workers who are going about things like the nice, polite, professional way, trying to work through the process, trying to play the game a little bit, uh, and and they get screwed even then, uh, yeah. despite you know despite trying all they could. Yeah. He mentioned that he has a Twitter thread uh, where he expl- where he goes more in depth about unions, and so let's let's take a look at that because obviously that's something that his that his fans have seen, and then we want to talk about the the fan reaction to this. Um, so his first set of tweets, he had eight tweets about that, and and so the first set of tweets say unions protect the workers they represent chiefly by giving them collective bargaining power, meaning that instead of negotiating the terms of your employment individually, one-on-one, the union negotiates baseline minimums for everyone all at once. This generally leads to better terms for all workers because as a collective, you have sway in these negotiations. How much you get paid, how long your hours are, how hard those hours are, how often you get breaks or time off, what safety precautions are taken, etc. 
So, you know, I think this is this is some really good stuff. And with voice actors, I can't remember if I saw another interview with Kyle or if it was a different voice actor, but they mentioned that, you know, voice actors, they have to yell a lot for their job. There's there's a lot of actual there, there's a lot of real strain on your voice that can that that is expected of a voice actor um and so one of the things that voice actors are able to secure in their union contracts is like i'm only able to do you know voice acting or, or you know i will only do voice acting that is this strenuous for this amount of time or something like that and that's that's a very important you know i mean if you've ever been to you know a football game where you've yelled a lot right just the next day your voice is shot the whole day right and so imagine this is your job you know and so you definitely that's a that's a legitimate safety precaution that people in other industries aren't gonna have to worry about that their union uh, that, that they through their union are able to fight for Second set of tweets said, oh, oh, it is from this. <laughs> it is from this set of tweets. So here he says, just one example of how SAG-AFTRA in the second set of tweets of how SAG-AFTRA helps voiceover performance specifically is by negotiating terms that protect us from vocally stressful work. We often have to do a lot of screaming slash shouting on the job, but our contracts ensure it's never too long a time. Our union's also gone to great lengths to educate both us and our employers on the dangers of vocally stressful work, and there are plenty of other benefits, but the big ones I want to point out are the health insurance and retirement fund. And so, you know, those are really good things. The third set of tweets, he says, America does not have universal health insurance. We pay for coverage, which can be expensive, and it often doesn't cover everything. Some workers can get it from their employers, which often means better slash more affordable coverage, but that's not possible for performers. We're freelancers. We work for a lot of different employers in very short bursts, so it wouldn't make any financial sense for any of them to give us health and retirement benefits on their own, and that's where SAG-AFTRA comes in. And the final set of tweets, he says, by collecting a small percentage on top of our free, on top of our fee, on top of our union dues, for every job we work on, SAG-AFTRA funds a phenomenal health plan that's very affordable for qualifying members, as well as a retirement plan. These are huge reasons for actors to work union. I could probably go on for days about this, and um, and we would love for him to come on the show if he wanted to. Uh, we weren't able to get in touch with him uh, this week, but if uh, you know, if anybody who's listening to this happens to know Kyle McCarley, uh, let him know that our doors are open. I could probably go on for days about this, but those are the big bullet points I wanted to cover for those unfamiliar slash uncertain about the benefits of unionization that wouldn't fit in the video. Um, so really good, really, really good um, public education work by union brother Kyle McCarley here. Uh, really good um, representation of the labor movement and uh, a really good illustration by virtue of Crunchyroll's actions of the depravity of bosses and corporate executives. And it is that depravity and uh, that illustration of the depravity of corporate executives and, and bosses that um, that has really sent the anime anime fandom into into a tizzy. And, and this tweet from at the 
C.J. Wilson is really representative of a lot of responses that we've seen. There, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of pictures of Mob, the main character that he voices, you know, with union signs. Um, there's been you know uh, fan art and stuff like that. Lots of very supportive tweets, and this one I think I think really kind of encapsulates everything. And it says, "Have you ever fucked up a professional negotiation so badly that you accidentally made all anime fans class conscious?" <laughs> so you know, I think. Not Nice. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I hope something comes out of it in that way. I hope that, you know, as as bad as I feel for Kyle and what he's going through, and, and certainly I relate to that struggle of, of retaliation, but I hope that folks get educated out of this process. And, and you know, maybe some, some folks, especially young folks who are really into anime and have been following this guy's career and his work, have learned something about unions mm-hmm. and have learned something about the labor movement and have learned something about labor versus capital in the marketplace and the way these dynamics play out all too often. Uh, you know, I think people, a lot of times people don't necessarily um, see these relationships for what they are. Uh, right. I think sometimes folks assume that the company's looking out for them or that, well, we just have to be happy with whatever we can get. Uh, but there is, there's a power imbalance inherent in, in the employer-employee relationship. And if some folks who don't think about those things, if some folks who are, you know, spending all their free time on anime and not politics and not unions, if they had a wake-up call with this moment... Uh, I think Kyle can be proud to know that he played a role in that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I, I hope happens. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that we have to do in labor is pull in different communities, uh, pull in different niche groups, subgroups, fandoms, and and tie things into to culture. Uh, you know, when when there's a labor issue happening... Is there a way to activate people in the popular community? Uh, and I think we have to be creative about that. Like, this is an opportunity to activate people in the anime community. Uh, there are opportunities to activate artists, musical artists, other, you know, actors um, and celebrities sometimes even. You know, I'm not big on celebrity culture and, and obsessing over celebrities, but... Uh, sometimes that can help. Sometimes you can get celebrities on your side or use them as a pressure point. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about a particular situation where scabs are being used instead of union labor to assemble concerts and put on shows. Well, you know, maybe we need to talk to the, the bands that are coming through. Mm-hmm. Um and so I hope that also what comes of this for Kyle is that there are conversations happening with other voice actors. Right. And I hope that, you know, they can really break through in this industry and break through with a company like Crunchyroll because it sounds like they are a really major player. If they're snatching up licensing for all these different programs coming out of Japan, if they're doing original programming, um, you know, they're a pretty major player in this 
part of the entertainment industry, and so it would be great to see unions really break through. Uh, It's a shame to see Crunchyroll react the way they have, but, you know, maybe maybe fans can do some organizing to put pressure on the company. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of consumer boycotts when and where they can be effective. And this is a situation where I think possibly it could be. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll definitely keep you updated on what happens there, what the union calls for, what Kyle calls for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. uh, ben, have we got Mel on the line? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, hopefully that wraps up here pretty soon. We will uh, we'll we'll do this JD Vance hit uh, really quick. It's like uh, we'll we'll take five minutes on that while maybe we um, maybe Mel's uh, fire alarms will stop going off. Um, and so, um, were you about to say something, Ben? Okay, yeah. So. Um, and keep us updated on on what Mel says, uh, and and Mel, I'm I'm sure you're listening. Uh, let let Ben know uh, when and if the fire alarm stop going off. Um, so yeah, so uh, Jonah Furman, friend of the show, came on last weekend to talk about the rail situation. Jonah Furman is in More Perfect Union yesterday, talking about J.D. Vance and the Kroger workers fight in Ohio, and so some background on that is that on September 13th, 14th, and 15th, he said, thousands of Kroger workers cast ballots at grocery stores across central Ohio to reject a contract offer and authorize what would be the first large grocery strike in the state in two decades. So this is, this is, okay, great. Yeah, and so this is a very, very big deal here in Ohio. And we're looking at, like like Jonah said, thousands of grocery store workers in Ohio. And uh, this is the third contract offer that they've rejected in two months. So they are really kind of dead set on fighting this proposal from Kroger, from the company. And you would think, you would think that J.D. Vance with his, you know, his um, platform as being uh, uh, you know, I'm fighting for quote the white working class, which is something that he is he's really concerned about. Uh, there are a lot of white workers, <laughs> in addition to black and brown and 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 women working at Kroger. But there are a lot of white workers working at Kroger. You would think you would think that in his state, thousands of people, some of whom are white, if that matters, uh, are going on strike. You would think that that would be something that he would be willing to comment on. But he has refused to. He's refused to even, he's refused to tweet about it. He's refused to release a statement. He's refused to reply to reporters who are going at, who are asking him about it. And so this is yet another example in, in countless, in countless examples of these right-wing politicians who claim to be populist refusing to fight for working people, refusing to even say that they support working people, much less using any power culturally or otherwise that they might have to fight for them, much less doing anything material, just saying 
just saying I support workers that work at Kroger in Ohio as they look to go on strike. He can't even do that. Right. I mean, but, well, to to issue such a statement might upset his donors. Right. And it might upset the true uh, oligarchs that he represents. And I think you're right. I, I know we're about to bring, bring Mel in, so I'll keep this short. But um, I think you're right that it's specifically geared towards white working class people. And mm -hmm. when they talk about this working class populism, they're talking about a subset of white culturally conservative people and that's what they mean when they right. say working class it's almost like a shorthand for you know normal you white know. guys who right. don't like the queers and all that stuff well but that's even sort of i mean where they're going even then they're they're not actually interested in fighting for them economically oh no in, absolutely in the not that, they just want to appeal right. to 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 their cultural grievances right that they themselves help create right <laughs> because those don't come it's not as if you're 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 born into a white working class family, and so automatically right. you're going to be right, anti-gay right. or anti-immigrant. Those things are are just drilled into you uh, from multiple directions. But yeah, just uh, another example, J.D. Vance. He's a total joke. And you know, and it's and it's worth pointing out, as Jonah does in his article. Uh, that Democrat Tim Ryan, who we can have issues with, is campaigning campaigning for Senate as a pro worker, pro labor candidate, and in a in a statement provided to More Perfect Union, Ryan took the Kroger workers' side in the struggle. Good. Qu quoting from Tim Ryan, pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not. He's been a he's been a pretty pro union guy, even if yeah. he's you know there are some other things that he's kind of weird on. But he says, quote, throughout the pandemic, Ohio's grocery workers have risked their lives to keep our stores open, shelves stocked, and neighbors. Fed. I stand with these essential workers in their fight for a contract that honors their hard work, including fair wages and fair health care benefits. So we appreciate that from Tim yeah, Ryan running statement. for Senate in Ohio. That's not a bad statement. That's a good statement. And um, and again, another example of, of, you know, there is a however, however small it may be and however, uh, how, however infuriating it is. Um, you know, there is a difference. So, there is a difference between Republicans and Democrats. Let's go to Mel. Uh, Mel Buer is now the associate editor at The Real News Network. She's got a fancy, smancy editing gig. And she That's joins awesome. And she joins a, a little union talk radio program in Alabama. Uh, we appreciate your time, Mel Buer. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> going have good. A, going a... good. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to talk to yeah. us. It it it, uh, yeah, it means a lot, and and we're really excited about your being the associate editor uh, with editor in chief Maximilian Alvarez at the Real News. I think y'all are going to make a great team. I'm so excited. I'm very excited. It's going to be a really fun time. Max and I have a lot of fun working together, and I'm really stoked to be able to lend my experience to a really, really fantastic publication that I've been working with. So pretty cool. It, it, it is pretty cool. Have y'all got any, um, ha have you already created with him like a, uh, you know, a five, 10 year master plan that you're going <laughs> to be implementing, uh, with, you know, under your rule? Oh, well, you know, um, no, I haven't even started yet. I'll start on Monday and, <laughs> um, you know, We'll see what we can we can come up with. I think we've got some cool ideas. So, yeah. 
I think it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Awesome. Good time. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to uh, reading what y'all put out. And uh, y'all, you did. Uh, this is. I guess this would be your. This is gonna be your last piece for the real news as a freelance writer. Um, mm -hmm. But it was about the Case New Holland strike in Iowa. Um, yep. So you know. Can you give us some of the background about this strike? Case New Holland, um, what do these workers do? What does the company make? Um, and, and what is the strike about? Uh, yeah, so Case New Holland is an industrial manufacturing plant that uh, is like the, the biggest competitor to John Deere. So they make industrial agricultural equipment and um, um, contracting equipment, so bulldozers and things like that. Um, the two plants that are currently on strike are uh, in Racine, Wisconsin, and Burlington, Iowa. They are represented by the UAW. Um, they're one of three, uh, two of three unionized plants within the company. Um, and these two uh, uh, plants walked out on strike at the end of their contract on May 2nd. So they've been on strike since then, just finished their 20th week heading into their 21st week on strike. Um, makes up about, oh, I'd say about a thousand workers between the two locations. Um, and uh, where I went was to Burlington. Um, and that's, this was back in July. And I had a chance to really kind of sit down with folks there and get a sense of what is uh, sort of the crux of the issue uh, in terms of negotiations with these workers. And it comes down to um, increase in wages that sort of account for the cost of living increases uh, due to inflation and other issues over the last couple of years. Uh, they want their health insurance to uh, stay steady and not see major increases in health insurance premiums. Um, and they're looking for better overtime and vacation policies. Um, and uh, right now they're still in the midst of, uh, I would say, I wouldn't call it necessarily a stalemate. They're back at the negotiating table this week, but over the course of the summer, they've been having a pretty intense back and forth with the company about uh, what they're looking for and in uh, a new tentative agreement, and they have not reached it yet. And the um, the strike being in its fifth month is pretty... Uh, you know, usually strikes don't last this long. Um, and, and, and that's one of the reasons, that, or, or that's a big reason that we wanted to talk to you about this because uh, like the Warrior Met strike in Brookwood, the mm -hmm. Case New Holland strike, it seems to be, and it could be because also like Warrior Met, this isn't 20,000, 10, 15,000 workers. This is 1,000 workers um, for one company, you know, in Iowa, is is that a correct read that there's just not a whole lot of media coverage about this strike? Well, there's certainly local coverage. So you're seeing a lot of um, state and local coverage, a lot of lot of publications, both in Racine and in Burlington are, you know, checking in and picket line relatively often. You're seeing a lot of uh, updates um, at some of the ag publications, so the agricultural publications that directly deal with this kind of news um, that have been following the negotiations well before it reached this point. Um, but as far as you know, national or international news, as was the case with John Deere, uh, not much. I mean, the, the closest you get to it is um, 
right before Bernie Sanders spoke at Labor Notes conference in July, July, um, he stopped off at both picket lines and gave speeches at, at both Burlington and Racine. Um, and, um, you know, that's, it's pretty much it in terms of, of major coverage. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, um, I would consider that kind of an ongoing thing. It's a lot diff- different to try and cover Midwest labor struggles. There are a lot of them. Folks don't tend to spend a whole lot of time on them unless they are something as high profile as the Kellogg strike. Um, but uh, in general, that's just you know the typical way to handle these types of, of labor struggles. Unfortunately, you know, um, right, right. it's just well, the, the a, way the uh, media works I- here. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that there is local coverage because the folks down in Brookwood can't even get that. Um, so, so you know, it, I, I'm glad to hear that there is some some amount of local coverage. And really, you know, that is, you know, it's nice to be profiled in you know the New York Times or or even you know national, um, maybe more indie outlets like the Real News. But but the the local news is what's going to be driving you know public opinion in the area where it matters. And so I, I I'm glad to hear that. Um, and, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, we wouldn't be privy to that um, or, or it'd be less difficult to to gauge that being not in the local area. Um, right. And you mentioned that John Deere, that Case New Holland is a big competitor with John Deere. Did the John, how did the John Deere strike last year play into these workers willingness to go on strike themselves? Do you think that that gave them some amount of confidence that they could get a better deal? Well, certainly, um, certainly John Deere workers are, are, you know, they're represented by the UAW as well. Um, and, uh, many, many folks from the UAW locals that, that represent John Deere workers in the area have shown up to the picket line, have held fundraisers to keep the strike kitchen stocked. Uh, they spend, you know, regular moments dropping things off if they're nearby. So, you know, there's a feeling of solidarity, right? Because the competition that happens between these companies generally doesn't extend to the employees who are making these items, right? Um, it's mostly about what the corporations want to do in terms of uh, cornering out a piece of the market, if you will. Um, and I should say that, you know, Case New Holland is... Um, it's got 13 locations across the country. They're all sort of engaged in the same sort of manufacturing. Um, and so when you have, you know, two of those unionized locations walking out, um, it's good to see that there is that sort of solidarity that has nothing to do with the competition between the employers. Um, and I think a lot of workers, the sense that I got when I was out on the line, I was out there about two months into their strike, um, the folks there are very aware of um, what they're asking for in terms of, um, you know, it, they're not asking for a whole lot. They're asking for what they deserve, you know, and that's something that you hear a lot. These folks put years, decades into this job. They sacrifice their bodies for this job and they ask for, you know, just the uh, modicum of respect that you would think you have earned from your tenure at that place, right? Um, and time and time again, we see these companies just kind of overstepping that or stepping on their necks really um, and saying, no, we don't actually respect the value of your labor. Um, and so often these unions are like, okay, bet, let's show you what the value of our labor is. We'll walk out, you know? And I don't think it was ever a question about 
uh, whether they would or wouldn't. It was more about, um, you know, how much leverage they have and um, what they can hopefully pressure the, the company to come to terms to using the strike to their advantage. And I think, um, you know, I think most folks on the line are um, ready to go back to work, um, but also willing to stay out for as long as necessary to to get a fair contract. So. And, you know, speaking about that leverage, you said that there are 13 uh, Case New Holland plants and two of them that are unionized are going on strike, right? Uh, they're on strike right now. Are the others mm-hmm. unionized and their contracts just don't line up or are the other 11 plants non-union? Um, I believe there's one more union plant in North Dakota. I don't think they're represented by the UAW. I, I would have to double check that information, but that contract is, I believe, on a different schedule. Um, so yeah. these two contracts are um, on the same negotiating schedule, and so they're negotiating together. Um, as far as I know, between it, the locals are 807 in Burlington and 130, I believe, in um, Racine. So that that negotiating team is working out a contract for both locations. Every other location uh, has not had a successful union drive yet to, to date. Do we have a sense of how it's affecting their production? Um, uh, I was just recently reading some information, some reports from an um, agricultural sort of digest, if you will. Um, Initially, the companies, the dealers that that buy these this equipment, were concerned that they would see uh, a, a dip, a sharp dip in production. Um, it's uh, you know, and take this with a grain of salt, but it sounds like it's not as sharp as they thought it was going to be. But it is still definitely cutting into uh, their ability to sell quality equipment, and that something like twenty percent of dealers have reported over the last five months that the scab equipment that is being shipped out um, is not good quality or has some pretty major issues uh, that would be addressed if it were built union made. So, you know, we're seeing that they are taking a hit here. Um, Mm -hmm. Now it's really just kind of as it is with these corporations, it's the the sort of race to the bottom. Um, How long can uh, the corporations hold out against this workforce before it really starts to eat into their profits? Um, as long as the UAW is providing weekly support to these strikers, I think that we can see that the picket lines will remain um, and we're not going to see much uh, movement except at the negotiating table. So You mentioned some of the employer's response in your article, and I wanted to quote this. Um, in an attempt to sow division between rank and file and the union leadership, Case New Holland took out a full page ad in the Journal Times that directly addressed striking workers and enjoined them to accept the contract terms already on the table. Um, that's pretty, you know, that that's pretty, uh, uh, that's pretty wild, taking out a full-page ad in the local newspaper trying to get the workers to, you know, take the scraps that we're offering you. I mean, are you surprised, though, when you think about it? <laughs> The great lengths. I mean, how many times have we had conversations, you and I, on this on the show about the lengths that employers will go to in order to bust unions and bust the power of unions? Whether it's a white paper calling union organizers terrorists, or oh yeah, you know, uh, spending millions of dollars on on union busting firms for what uh, captive audience meetings that ultimately don't 
provide what they think it's going to provide. You know, they they kept Kellogg's workers out on the line for tens of millions of dollars a day. They're willing to do that because when it comes down to it, it's not about it's not really about the money that they would be losing. Uh, it's about maintaining power over their workforce. And, you know, if they budge even an inch, you know that the unions, as they rightfully should, will take the mile that is earned, you know, that they have earned, that is owed to them. Um, and so seeing that they've taken out a full page ad in the Journal Times is not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think, again, you know, from the conversations that I've had with folks, it's not having its intended effect. If anything, the strike has sort of uh, sewed up some of those divisions, right? Um, especially in Burlington, which is a company that has two different sides to its manufacturing. It's got an agricultural side and it's got a construction side. And those two sides didn't talk to each other until the strike happened. Those workers now know each other by name, by family member, right? They've been able to build solidarity out on the picket line in a way that they maybe have not had the chance to before. And that's really kind of given them the strength and the determination that is required in order to remain on the picket line. Um, and you know, I think that's uh, not something that the company particularly anticipated. And so they're they're not pulling any punches. They're doing their best, you know. Right. And and so, you know, I, I was going to ask you about how the, the striking striking workers have responded to to those attempts to sow division. But I think you already answered the question there. And, and, and it's that they are uh, uh, they're not allowing the company to divide them. And I think that we have seen in in other strikes, workers come together over, um, you know, uh, beyond some divisions that they might have had before, whether that be by, you know, department or race or gender, um, being on strike, doing such a such a militant thing. Uh, I think it, it it is inherently uniting and, um, you know, and, and it's good to see that, that they are they're able to um, withstand some of those efforts to divide them. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, yeah, I mean, there's, um, it, those are relationships that are forged in struggle. And that's a whole different type of relationship that uh, is not easy to build. But what I think once it's there can be incredibly powerful and there's a lot of potential there. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I certainly hope to see in this case. That as they come together and as they're unifying against the company's attacks, um, that they discover that they're way more powerful than they ever thought and that they have more in common than they ever thought. And. You know, hopefully that can be leveraged into a very successful outcome for the strike. Uh, I agree. You know, and again, this is also brought in members of the community who maybe mm-hmm. weren't aware of working conditions at the plant. Um, you know, there are some case employees who spoke to me back in July who said that community members had always just referred to them as, as rich folks. Right. You work a mm-hmm. case, you make a lot of money, you know, um, and when you hear the stories of these workers who are, uh, you know, subject to to pretty intense uh, health insurance premium increases, you know, they're subject to the same bouts of inflation and injury and things that, you know, really cut into the wages that you take home every day, not to mention stagnant wages as well. Um, they start to see, you know, the Facebook posts. And, and again, Burlington is a tight knit, small Iowa community, you know, um, it's, it's a relatively sizable town, but it's still just a town and everyone knows everyone, you know? Um, and so it's really interesting to see how the community has sort of woken up to this particular struggle. Um, and they've seen, 
you know, mixed reactions as you do when you see this kind of action take place, but they've also seen, you know, sustained support from other businesses or, um, you know, individuals who are helping out at the strike kitchen, for example, or who are uh, continuing to bring food to the picket line, right? And, you know, you also see the, the, some of the individuals who maybe have crossed the picket line to provide goods and services to the folks in the plant, the replacement workers and the like. And so folks take notice, right? Mm-hmm. And you start to kind of see how that sort of those lines get drawn within the community. Um, and I think response writ large has been mostly positive um, and supportive. And um, I think most folks are really rooting for for uh, the workers to to come out of this with a fair and uh, equitable contract. So I saw in your article that there are local businesses that have uh, signs that say proud union home, like those yard signs that say proud union home in their windows in their front windows for their business. And so that's that's a you know, that's a pretty interesting dynamic there, I think. Yeah, uh, when I showed up uh, to Burlington, I was going, funnily enough, uh, my train was delayed 10, 12 hours because of supply chain freight issues <laughs> down, the, down the line. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I showed up way too late to go to the picket line and ended up just checking into my little B&B and walking down to the city center. And I walked into one of those bars that had you know, proud union home sign in the window. And sat down with some of the folks who were who were just there to to watch whatever baseball game was on. And um, most folks there are like, oh yeah, you know, I've been I've lived here my whole life, and uh, you know, I understand what it's like to 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 fight bosses like this. And you can kind of just you heard the conversations amongst folks who are, you know, ready to to sort of like really kind of put their support at the forefront of of their own businesses and. Um, you know, it was interesting to see which bars had business and which bars didn't have business based on who had a sign in their uh, window, you know, wow. um, fascinating, fascinating sort of uh, cultural thing happening there. Um, yeah, interesting, interesting, uh, interesting experience. And it was, you know, it was as usual, really lovely to to sit down and talk to workers for a weekend. So not to get too off topic here, but something you you just described, I think, <clears throat> is really interesting. And I think we're going to maybe have to wrestle with more publicly is that, you know, if roughly 70 percent of people now support unions, according to the polls, um, the even there in the small case, you know, the bars putting the union sign out front obviously can help with customers the union members themselves, but their families, their friends, anyone supporting the union, they're going to know that, okay, that's the bar I want to go to. And, you know, I'm wondering at what point do we see more like intra-capitalist competition where some start to lean into unions being popular, uh, being popularly conceived as a good thing, uh, because there was a time in this country where some companies did lean into to the fact that they had union labor uh, or that they worked with other unions. And so, yeah, I'm just curious to see, you know, that's a really small example, you know, it rooted in a very, you know, bitter local struggle. Uh, but as these struggles spread across the country and they get more publicity and it's clear whose side the people are on, 
I'm just wondering, at some point, some of these capitalists are going to like put two and two together and be like, you know what? We might actually even make more money or, or have better PR if we meet them halfway uh, or, you know, recognize a union and then lean into that in our marketing or I'm just, you know, just unfortunately, uh, you know, liberalism and neoliberalism in particular appropriates anything and everything just the way they've appropriated racial justice as like a marketing technique. And I'm, I'm kind of waiting for the day that like workers' rights and unions become commodified in that way. Well, certainly you do uh, see this already. I mean, um, you know, the, I'm sure that we could find many, many cases of corporations who are locked in like bitter struggles, union struggles, that ultimately union drives are successful, then the companies can kind of bank on the fact that now their labor is producing union project products with a nice, cool union bug on it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the internal politics and the ways in which the corporations try to skirt those contract provisions or, you know, cut corners in ways where unions are just filing grievance after grievance after grievance, those kind of things just don't you don't see that. That kind of fades right. into the background. You think of like popular struggles like the Kellogg strike, you know, ultimately the strike was ultimately something that you could consider to be successful. You're buying Kellogg's products with the union bug on them. You know, it's made by union workers. But how many times do you think about what happens after a strike like that? How many workers have been retaliated against, you know, as a result of their organizing activity, right? right? Um, it's sort of this like seedy, not so nice piece that a lot of folks tend to just kind of gloss over when we think about major labor victories. Um, and I think because we live in a capitalist society um, and we, you know, are subject to these sort of popular tides or trends, though I wouldn't call the labor movement that by any stretch of the imagination, right? It's not not some sort of trend, hopefully, right? Um, it's just a, a reimagining of, of uh, victorious heydays of, of the last 200 years, right? Um, I think that the left's ability, or I should say the labor movement's ability to sort of take that good press and use that to pressure better work for better working conditions in these spaces to say, okay, corporation, you want to be proud to be union? Well, you're not really putting your money where your mouth is. Let's actually kind of use this as like a vehicle to be able to continue to improve working conditions. You know, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, um, I think you know? that's reflected in the the wave of organizing we've seen at nonprofits and like, quote unquote, progressive institutions and companies and, and even some of the labor struggles that we see within unions themselves with their own staff unions. Um mm -hmm. Of practicing what you preach. And it's been interesting to watch that play out as some of these organizations uh, kind of can put their finger in the air, see which way the wind's blowing and, and, and get things worked out pretty easily. And then others, the true colors come out. Uh, as, right. soon as, as soon as the word unions mentioned, the true colors really, really come out. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, you also see this as well with the sort of reforms that you're seeing in some of the larger business unions, right? The industrial unions like the UAW, right? Where you're seeing this newer generation of reform-minded rank and file workers going, practice what you preach here. Let's improve these conditions within our own union so that we are right. better suited 
to engage in these very large, uh, you know, multi-million dollar sort of struggles against these billion dollar corporations. If we really want to move forward and improve the lives of our membership, you know, here's a way that we could maybe do that. And I think that as well is like a very interesting sort of uh, more public sort of front that's opened up as we've sort of seen this happen over the last couple of years, you know, um, granted, I'm fairly, uh, I'm a new entrance to entrant to the, the labor reporting sort of game, right? I have a lot to learn, but I, this is just the sort of things that I've seen since I've um, sort of raised that personal consciousness in the last couple of years. And it's exciting to see, you know, and there's a lot of really cool potential there. Um, we got we got a lot of bosses on the back foot too, and I yeah. think they're freaking scared of what's going to happen in the next five ten years. So yeah, I think it's fitting that you come after we talked to Dave Jameson and he he went over that uh, Littler Mendelssohn report where mm-hmm. they are saying that basically they're admitting that uh, they're worried uh, they see a new era of of union energy and union organizing and and they're they're concerned about it. They would prefer you right. to hire them to handle it. But, you know, they they recognize this moment. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great to see un- internal union reform being put out into the popular consciousness. Like just in the last few months, I've actually had conversations with rank and file workers about, hey, did you know there are people trying to re- reshape the Teamsters? Did you know there are people inside UAW trying to make it a more democratic union, uh, a stronger fighting union? Uh, bring back the heyday of the UAW. Uh, you know, those conversations are happening out here. Uh, and, and, you know, certainly more so than I can remember. And I think that's right. that's really, it's promising. It's promising, right. you know, if this was all just from institutional labor and from executive directors and national presidents and you know, that would be one thing, but it, it, it really is a bottom-up grassroots energy uh, that's propelling these things. And, and I don't know how much you've seen of that in these particular strikes in Iowa, you know, how much grassroots energy versus, like, the top-down or, you know, headquarters support kind of thing. But that's that's what I'm seeing is there's a lot of bottom-up energy being infused into the labor movement and kind of mm-hmm. just manifesting in different ways. Certainly in the sort of limited struggles that I've had the privilege to kind of step into and, and tell stories about, um, the uh, general consensus is that the rank and file are driving uh, the organization of this, right? Um, and union leadership is sort of taking their cues from the rank and file, knowing full well that like, if they don't provide or bring back something that's going to be useful for their membership, their membership don't care. They will just vote it down. Right. Um, you know, it's how you see the sort of reforms that you were hoping to see stick at, uh, the UAW convention, right. Um, the rank and file are the ones who really pushed for those types of things. You see this sort of, um, change in the way that they do their, their voting. you see the change in the way that they introduce these resolutions for their membership. Right. Um, obviously you're still seeing pushback, as we saw with uh, the increase in strike pay per week, unfortunately, um, which would have directly benefited the folks in Burlington and for a time frustrated the folks picketing in Burlington, right? Um, however, uh, you know, the, the idea here is that, you know, rank and file membership are 
standing shoulder to shoulder and it's producing results, you know, um, and it's an empower, sort of empowering moment for these folks. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of folks who are um, finding that their participation in these types of labor actions is a galvanizing sort of energizing force for them to continue to lend more time and energy to improving and participating in the wider labor movement outside of their own personal struggles at their right. own workplace, you know. Like they get a taste um, of the struggle and and it just, you know, brings them all the way in to next thing you mm -hmm. know, they're at somebody else's strike. Right. Right. And um, that is fantastic. And it's, you know, it's very cool to see that happening on a wider scale, like Sean O'Brien showing up for and working with Amazon workers, right? Um, and, and bringing the Teamsters into a, a sort of wider united front for pressuring Amazon uh, executives to allow this union driving to con union drives to continue. Stuff like that is exactly the sort of energy that we need um, as we go forward into uh, which, what could be a pretty uh, contentious sort of general election campaign year. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the could potential for changes to, uh, to, to really take place uh, within the NLRB and a new administration, if that comes to that, right? Um, right. Even with, you know, the movement of the Biden administration, which I would consider to be sort of glacial in its pace to give more, um, uh, more support to the wider labor movement. Um, all of that is things to, to, to sort of think about and see how, you know, um, the building of this national and international solidarity across unions is going to be crucial, you know. Totally agree. Um, William in the chat says, absolutely no one wants a business union cozy with the bosses or co-opted by the Democratic Party. Those days are over. We're going to build a radical bottom-up movement. Hell William, yeah. from your fingers to God's ears, Mel Buer, <laughs> associate editor of The Real News Network. We appreciate your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yep. Have a good one. Thanks. All right, folks. Uh, yeah, so that's going to be it for us today. Uh, Biometronome in the chat says, according to their personal experience with co corrupt unions and corrupt news propaganda, many workers have extremely cynical views of unions, and they believe there are differences. And, and it looks like he's going to be sending us another chat here soon. But, but yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was working for AEA and I was beating the bushes to recruit members, um, one of the things that happened a lot was people had a bad experience. Hey, mm -hmm. I was at this such and such school at such and such district, such and such let me down. Uh, right. Or, you know, the association let me down, so I'm not going to join now. And that's something that we have to wrestle with is that the labor movement has been on decline for, you know, at least five decades, arguably right. longer. So not everyone who has had a personal relationship or a personal experience with organized labor has a good one. Right. right. And that's something we have to address and, and um, break through to people um, because you can't just just leave them out there uh, kind of burned out or uh, disgruntled um, because, first of all, they need your help. And, and second, they're, you know. We need their help. Right. Uh, so. Um, yep. 
I really uh, appreciate everybody tuning in today. I know that there were some technical difficulties. It, it sort of made things trickier on our end. Hopefully, the listening experience, though, was was co comparable to normal. Yeah. Um, I hope everyone has a great weekend. Get some rest. I hope your favorite ball team wins whatever game they're playing. And you can uh, enjoy some time with your friends and family. And... Um, yeah, I really appreciate everyone who's been tuning in today. We've had some good chats. We've had some good guests today. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.